Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by a brand new sponsor, the law firm of McDonald Hopkins. Building medtech companies the right way based on great technology is not a one-size-fits-all endeavor. McDonald Hopkins provides customized and proactive strategies that align clients' valuable medtech technology with their business goals. This, in turn, builds those clients into successful, thriving companies. With strong experience and depth in the startup, venture capital, intellectual property, and fundraising arenas, McDonald Hopkins can be an important part of your team to help you develop the medtech business that you envision. Don't forget to check out our three events we have coming up this year, in which McDonald Hopkins is a sponsor of two of them. Our Midwest Showcase in Cleveland, Ohio, August 30th. Our Commercialization and Go-to-Market Strategy Workshop, August 31st, the day after the Midwest Showcase. There are bundling discounts on the website and our Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, October 25th and 26th. More information on our website on all three events. In this episode, our guest Ben Holmes at Nanacon and I discuss the University of Virginia Biomedical Engineering Program, the importance of understanding the economics of the problem you are trying to solve, the i program, taking on the PMA pathway as a startup, finding capital as a PMA product, what's next for Nanacon, lessons learned so far, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Ben Holmes. podcast thank you great to be here yeah so uh ben a introduction into uh who you are your background and uh what you're currently working on yeah for sure so i am ben holmes i have a background in biomaterials and tissue engineering i spent my um academic time working on uh new materials and new fabrication techniques for creating tissue regeneration scaffolds so uh, primarily working in bone and cartilage, um, but I have also been heavily involved in medical device entrepreneurship. So um, actually my um, longest engagement is with a company called Sonistic. I actually joined the company as employee one uh, when it was just the two co-founders and have been involved in that company in various roles since 2013 and have, have you know learned a lot from my experience with them. Uh, and then my Current project is Nanocon, so I am one of the co-founders and I'm the CEO. Nanocon is a spin-out from the Tissue Engineering Lab where my co-founder and I were doing our academic work at George Washington University. And it's an early stage medical device company developing a 
minimally invasive implant for treating cartilage damage and loss in joints, the kind that's most closely associated with osteoarthritis. And it's basically a flexible porous patch, which can be inserted into the joint space in a minimally invasive procedure and used to fill in focal cartilage lesions, which are the moderate to severe stage of arthritis. Basically, they're potholes that develop in the cartilage surface of the joint. So they're typically what cause patients pain. And if you don't treat the potholes, uh, the damage gets worse. And eventually, people need total knee replacements. So we're really looking to intercept the disease and treat a relatively younger, more active patient population, which is not yet a candidate for knee replacement, but is well on that road to knee replacement. Okay. Um, so a few questions uh, stemming mm -hmm. from that, then I want to really dive into Nanocon. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, where'd you do your schooling at? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate at University of Virginia, and then okay. my graduate at George Washington University. Ah, very cool. Um, yeah, we've had... Um, um, Seaville Biohub uh, on the podcast before. Uh, Nikki Hastings, I think, is who runs. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And, and so, so that was really interesting for me. I wasn't aware. I, I knew UVA was a good school, um, but uh, you know, for someone who's uh, grew up in the Midwest, I wasn't aware. You know, we in the Midwest. It, you know, you're up, you're in Big Ten country, right? There's a lot of like Iowa, Purdue, Ohio State, Michigan, mm -hmm. I mean, Northwestern, right? It's a lot of good engineering schools. And I wasn't aware of the rich ecosystem specifically in biomedical engineering down at uh, UVA. So, so super cool. Um, where did you, where, where'd you say you did your master's at? Uh, George Washington University. Okay. And that's where your company is based now, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. cool. Um, so Sonostick, you brought it up. We don't we don't need to touch on 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 the mm -hmm. technology there, but that's actually how Ben and I met. Um, Sonostick's a client of Project MedTechs. We've been working with Gary Wakeford, the CEO there, um, uh, for probably over a year now, um, and he always talked about. You showed up on the pitch deck quite frequently, right? As I think you're the chief technology officer. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he's like, you got to meet Ben. You got to be Ben. He has a whole nother company. And then I think we ran into each other a couple times at some other conferences now at this point. Um, so anyways, I wanted to make that connection for Sonostick and give Gary a shout out because um, he's he's always uh, introducing us to other people that he's he's working with. Um, OK, so 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 Nanocon, you, you kind of explain the problem, the technology. I'm curious going back to like your customer discovery phase of this um and your and and really even before customer discovery but like problem discovery um tell me a little bit about that process for you because we we harp on this a lot with our startups of and and it's actually i'm giving a presentation in six hours um about the common pitfalls we see startups make and one the first one we talk about is problem discovery and truly making sure you understand the problem and what's currently the solutions but also how it was tried to solve in the past so i'm curious on your take on how that process went for you yeah i mean i love that question because i always feel like that's really what made us right um you know we benefited from doing you know kind of like lean startup style uh, customer discovery focused programs early on. Uh, and we also did do NSF I-Corps when we launched the company. So I, I love customer discovery. It's always the first thing I tell, you know, young or first time entrepreneurs to do before they even, you know, think about trying to build the product or talk to investors. We 
you know, when we were first starting out, we had this technology in a very um, immature form, right? It basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a synthetic material that replicates the collagen structure in cartilage. So there's no collagen in it. It's totally synthetic, but that's basically what it is. And so it acts as a substrate for stem cell growth. And then we found, you know, both as a substrate and then also uh, when it's 3D printed, you get this really nice uh, fast integration of stem cell populations and you start to get cartilage formation. So that's basically the data that we had when we were going out to, to start the company. And so our original assumption, not knowing much about, um, you know, the medical device market or the orthopedic sector was that this was going to be an alternative to knee replacement. So that was kind of our original idea. This was going to be something that would be, you know, as, from a product standpoint, might look like a knee replacement, might be a little bit less invasive, but that was kind of our, our thinking. Uh, and after doing customer discovery and talking to about 10, you know, TKA specialists, uh, they all told us, you know, one, even though patients have a horrible time with knee replacement, I mean, from their perspective, it works. And part of the reasons why they think it works is because it's been the standard of care since the 50s, really. Um, you know, their, their thinking is that it, it provides a reliable solution for an older patient. Um, and if they were going to do anything uh, as an alternative to knee replacement, they'd uh, want to see at least 10-year follow-up data. So, you know, immediately heard two, you know, heard two things. One, from a product standpoint, there's a, hot, a high amount of skepticism. From a clinical efficacy standpoint, um, there's a really high, you know, barrier to influence people. And then the other thing that was interesting, I mean, there's no way to beat around this bush. You know, healthcare is a is an industry. And another thing that's that sort of started coming up towards the end of you know that initial ten customer process, and when we started to talk to some people kind of on the on the supply side as well, was that you know surgeons make money doing knee replacements through volume, and it's a procedure that they they really understand. It's really easy for them to do just from a from a workflow perspective, and they make money by doing as many as they can a year. So the incentive to change, uh, to learn something new, to try to adopt a new product, just really was not there. Um, and that's where we kind of started to shift the focus and, and got introduced to some sports medicine surgeons. Um, and it was very clear after five or six, although we certainly did many more than five or six, but it was it was clear after the first five interviews that uh, sports medicine surgeons and especially knee specialists who are trying to treat this type of cartilage damage in a, a slightly less severe patient or a slightly younger patient who isn't yet ready for a knee replacement, it was the total polar opposite. Um, there are surgical techniques that don't work particularly well. They only give the patient one to two years of recovery. There are grafting procedures that can be done, but they are, you know, relatively time consuming and very technique heavy and don't necessarily offer better outcomes. And then there's cell therapeutics and live tissue products where tissue is either grafted into the cartilage lesion to try to rebuild it, or there are a couple products out there that deliver live cells, whether they're from a cadaver or take it from the patient to try to actually rebuild some cartilage. And from uh, a clinical perspective, they're doing okay. Um, some of them have some good trials uh, supporting them. And uh, there is some good anecdotal evidence coming from kind of post-market use. But it's kind of the polar opposite of what's going on with the knee replacements, where they're extremely expensive. 
they can be hard to get reimbursed uh, by payers. And in general, there's just a, a real loss of efficiency. I mean, especially with, with tissue grafting, you have to source that on a, a patient by patient basis. For the, for the majority of the cell therapeutic products, they also have to be prepared you know, for the patient ordered on a case by case basis. You're not buying a bunch of them and like leaving them in a freezer necessarily. So there are all these issues with cost. There are all these issues with uh, delivery. Um, there are questions around, you know, real clinical benefit in some cases. But at the same time, for the surgeon, it's still a volume business. So they really want to be able to use something that, uh, you know, is easy to access. They don't have to think about it too much. It can accommodate a fast arthroscopic workflow. And then honestly, it's, it's really pairing that uh, economic value piece uh, and, and sort of the workflow usability piece with the potential for much better clinical outcomes. And that benefit does flow to the patient. I mean, you look at like a really good surgeon might do, uh, you know, 30 uh, osteochondral allografts a year. Most are doing 10 to 15. Um, but a, a good surgeon could probably do more than 200 nanocons a year. So, you know, there is, there is an alignment between, you know, incentive for outcomes for the patient and also the financial incentives of the provider. Yeah, th there's there's a lot here, um, mm -hmm. a lot of good golden nuggets you just gave. Um, <laughs> so so the ICOR program, I'm curious on your your um, thoughts on how that went. Um, Project MedTech has had two clients um, that we've worked with uh, or still working with who went through the ICOR program fairly recently. Um, and what we found was the customer discovery, talking to leaders in the industry piece, boy, they came with an incredible amount of data and information. And, and really, then it gives the Project MedTech team a better ability to start to craft, you know, okay, here's the milestone mapping, here's our budget, mm -hmm. here's our plan, here's how we're going to go at, and attack this because we have so much data presented. So I'm curious, did, did you have a similar experience to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the you know, the five minute spiel I just gave in kind of one breath was the result of hundreds yeah, of course, customer course. interviews, right? So you get you get to a point where you can really clearly, um, you know, articulate what you're doing, why it's unique, and why people are going to care about it, which sound, you know, might sound simple, yeah. Um, but you know, that comes from doing all these interviews and to kind of talk a little bit about how the process was going, you know, the first f five to 10 sports, uh, medicine surgeons we talked to were, were sort of alluding to some of those points, right. That things are difficult to use. They don't consider there to be a clinical standard of care and they kind of feel like their job is just, you know, delaying the inevitable. Right. Um, so those were sort of the threads we continue to pull on, um, and I will say also our customer discovery didn't stop at surgeons. We also at a certain point started talking to people on the hospital management side. We even talked to some payers. Uh, we talked to people from CMS as well. Uh, and then we even eventually started talking to some people from the strategic side to sort of see how they're looking at the market and kind of, you know, validate um, our learnings. So, you know, the, the process can be expanded to talk to, you know, folks from, you know, if you're familiar with the business model canvas, you can talk to people from the different segments of the canvas applying the same methodology to getting information about all these different aspects of the business. So, you know, I think the thing that's great about I-Corps is they, 
you know, they sit you down, they make you focus on it, and then they kind of kick your butt to get the results. So I think that's that's why it's good. I mean, also it obviously comes with some funding. So you know, our seed funding was our ICOR grant and then a small research grant. So it can also be really helpful to have that funding, but also be forced to devote it to you know early business development activities. Because I think especially if if it's technical founders, there's always a temptation to spend the money on only research and more research, and that's very important. But um, you have to apply a lot of rigor to developing the business case as well. And, and as you pointed out, th these learnings really shape what the product should be. And then that shapes your whole development path. So, you know, a, a, the kind of clinical trials that we're talking about doing for this product as a sports medicine indication, I mean, they look totally different if we were still trying to, you know, be a replacement for TKA. So, you know, that also, it, it defines the indication, which then defines how you're gonna do trials. It might even define how you're gonna be regulated. Yeah, right. Um, okay. And so that's, that's actually a good kind of segue here. The other piece I, had to, I wanted to bring up was the data piece, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you're a, um, PMA product. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, something that's really interesting, right. And, and so you brought up data, um, earlier on and that, you know, data is a key barrier to entry. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think for, for your product data is going to be key for, you know, in your case, um, the FDA does a lot of dictating of the data you need to collect as well. But, um, you know, so that's pretty obvious for you, but for people who are in the five ten k realm, um, data actually isn't, a big focus of the FDA. I mean, most 510Ks don't need any clinical data. They go to market, right? However, um, we have a, um, I always use this in presentations. I'll say, just because the FDA says you don't need clinical data doesn't mean you need clinical data. Yeah. Um, in your case though, what's unique about this, and, and for whatever reason, you know, these early stage companies, I'm starting to ramble <laughs> on this question, but I'm gonna get to my point. Um, some of the early stage companies, when they hear they don't need clinical data, they they're like okay with that because they get to market and they think once they start commercializing that it's going to be easier even though commercialization is like the hardest thing you'll have to do and so for you though as an early stage company you finish the iCorp program and you look at this and go wow to even sell this product i'm going to need mounds of clinical data right um i'm, I'm just curious like for you what was your thought process when you said, yeah, I'm gonna take on this challenge, right? Because not a lot of startups take on this challenge, right? Like I, I, I don't know about you, I mean, we, we saw each other at LSI. Um, LSI is probably a different story, but if you go to any other conference, like how many startups are there that are like, oh, I'm a PMA product? That's not <laughs> a lot, right? So so tell me th that decision process for you to say, yeah, I'm willing to take on this challenge though. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it can almost be like a dirty word in the med tech space, right? Um, right. To say you're a PMA, um, you know, the thing that always gave me confidence in what we were doing, it's really twofold. I mean, one, talking to a ton of surgeons, I built relationship with a bunch of surgeons. Um, and just the clinical need was always extremely clear to me. Like, I, I always felt like if we could gather together the resources to get there, like the market's there and it's starving for what we're doing. So that always gave me a lot of confidence that it was worth the effort um, and, you know, would be worth the, the money and the resources to get to get there. Right. The other thing that has always really kept me going is just how 
how proactive um, the patient population is. Um, you know, the first time I felt this uh, or had this type of an interaction was way back in, and I've, I'm looking on my wall at the date because I actually have this framed. It's like one of the first like kind of like important things from our, our journey. It was back in uh, 2018 the Washington Business Journal did an article about us because, you know, there aren't there aren't a ton of, you know, med tech companies, regenerative medicine companies in the Washington DC area. So they did this really great article on us. And after the article was published, my phone started ringing with numbers I didn't recognize. And so I, I pick it up and it's this this woman who is a, a banking executive. She's local to the DC area. She lives in Tyson's. And she's an avid skier. She's been skiing her whole life. And now she's starting to have really bad arthritis. And she has one of these big cartilage lesions in her knee. And so she's talked to a bunch of different surgeons. She's not satisfied with any of the options. She doesn't want to get any of the things that are available because they don't sound like they'll last long enough. But she can't get back to her life. And so she wants to know if she, if she, how she can get the Nanocon product. And I have to politely explain, well, we're not even in trials yet. And you know, yada, yada, yada. So, so I have that conversation. And then about half an hour later, my phone rings again. It's this gentleman who lives out in Chantilly, Virginia. You know, he tells me all about his problems with his knees and his hips. He had a hip replacement at 45. You know, he's really prone to arthritis. Now he's having these problems in his knees and he doesn't want to get a knee replacement. And he wants to know where he can get treated with a nanocon implant. And again, I have to politely explain that we're, you know, we're preclinical. We're not even in trials yet. And that happens, you know, probably two dozen more times over the next week. And I and I probably got 50 emails on top of that. Uh, and over the years, I, you know, I still get people reaching out to me saying, you know, your product looks great. I heard about you from somewhere. And I want to know I want to know if you know what surgeons are using it or if I can be in a trial. And I mean, that has really kept me going, especially through through some, you know, tough financial times that what I'm what I'm doing what we're doing at nanocon is really going to matter to people um, and that you know they really do need this this treatment they need better treatments and they they need something like what we're doing that can provide a much better standard of care for them and also ultimately be accessible you know something that any surgeon can do is what's really going to open up up the market and so I think that's that's really kind of the other piece of it is is just knowing this is going to have an impact on patients. Yeah. Yep. Um, and 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 so uh, a couple things um, that you re-highlighted there that I had written down from the the previous um, um, points you were making. I wanted to discuss. Um, you brought up changing physician incentives. Um, you know, getting getting physicians who are making money in a comfortable procedure and then all of a sudden you're going to change that um and do it in a different way right and so that's that's a big deal we talk about this um nick anderson was the original person who who talked about this on one of our happy hours um, that is on youtube and it was pretty much if you're a if you're a tech a medical technology company um and you need to understand that unless you are helping insurance companies keep all their money in their pile or you're helping hospitals extract as much money from that pile as possible or keep what they already have if you can't answer that flow 
you have a serious problem. Now, I will say with the asterisk to this is as we move to, towards a value-based healthcare system, or even as um, patients become, there becomes less hurdles between getting care and, and patients, that that does start to change that equation a little bit, right? Because like you just said, if patients now are, as they get more empowered, right, in healthcare, um, that changes that equation a little bit, right? Because now you can rely on people like you just, all the examples you just gave of people saying, uh, hey, wait a minute, I, I want this, right? Um, and eventually we'll slowly get there. But but I'm curious, you know, as you were thinking about that, was that defeating in any way? Because I can see how, <laughs> you know, like uh, I had this conversation with early kids entrepreneurs all the time where I'm like, hey, I love the patient journey. I love that physicians love this. Do you have that economic story here though? Or else it's, it's just not gonna happen, right? Um, so like as you were doing this and you were going, you know, your initial idea, but then that kind of got shut down a little bit because maybe the economic story wasn't there. Is that deflating in any way? Or is it just more, hey, I'm still gonna solve that problem eventually. I just gotta start here. Yeah, I think, I mean, it certainly can be deflating. I think that we were lucky to kind of pivot to the sports medicine vertical early and really understand those value prop. I mean, the value proposition is so clear. Like you talk to any any knee arthroscopist and they'll say there isn't, there isn't a standard of care. Um, and they simply don't have that sort of easy to do high volume option, right? So, but I can certainly see how for uh, other companies or other technologies, how that that could be an early stumbling block and an early area for discouragement. But I think that if you trust in the discovery, the customer discovery process, and you're able to make those pivots early, I mean, really, it's just it's not being wedded to whatever you think the product is and letting that customer feedback di dictate what it should be. And if you find that there's no, you know, there's no desire for any any new product in a space, then, you know, thinking about where else to go and being willing to make those pivots. Um, and it's a, it's a really good learning exercise because you have to make decisions like that constantly in all different areas of operation. So learning to do that early on will, will serve you well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, that's another, another, it's, it's funny. Uh, Ben and I talked yesterday and we didn't talk at all about the podcast. And, uh, I said, yeah, we'll just figure it out as we go. And, and I had no notes coming into this either. And then as Ben went, I wrote some notes down and every time you finish a question or every time I ask you a question, you finish your answer. It's actually just leading into our next question, which is just <laughs> hilarious. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the other piece I wanted to talk about was being a technical founder, which you are, mm -hmm. and pivoting into that CEO role, what that's been like. Um, and then also, you know, how have you prepared for that? Because like you said earlier, right, that is sometimes hard for technical founders to transition in from, you know, that technical mindset to, well, now this is a business. And there's a lot more going on here than the, just this technical piece. So how did you prepare for that? Um, and, and I guess, you know, how was that experience for you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I, you know, I wish I could say that there's an easy to explain straight line for me, but uh, you know, I, it's really more of just kind of a random constellation of factors in my life that have come together. Yeah. Um, you know, I think really the, the most important skill is probably communication 
and being able to communicate technical ideas non-technically. And if you're able to do that, you will be able to attract people from other important areas of operation, you know, like clinical implementation, like product development, like regulatory, and you'll be able to tell them what you're doing, get their feedback, certainly get their interest, and then incorporate that back into what you're doing. And so I think I was always really willing to pick up the phone, you know, explain what we were doing in a, in a way that was non-technical enough that, it, and I've certainly gotten much better at doing that over time, but explain what we're doing in a way that's non-technical enough that, you know, a non-biomedical engineer or a non-polymer chemist can understand it. Um, and then be able to kind of incorporate that learning and just really being willing to seek out mentorship and feedback. And I think to that end, I mean, I've had um, probably more opportunities at this point than I could count to be men mentored uh, and to kind of build, you know, managerial and operational skills. I mean, go going all the way back to i I mean, that was the first real opportunity, right? I think that there were some experienced med tech folks in the, in the um, you know, leadership team uh, that took a special interest in me. Uh, we continue to do programs like that every year. I mean, it's a great way to grow your network and it's a great way to expand your skill set. you know, when you are waiting for funding to come in and you kind of don't have anything else to do. So we did, uh, you know, VentureWell does a great program as a follow-on to i -Corps. We did that program. Uh, we did UCSF's Rosamund Innovator program during the pandemic. We did Creative Destruction Lab. And then of course we are a JLabs company. So I think always looking for you know, a program like that, like an accelerator or an incubator and, and kind of looking at, okay, we just did this program, but what's the next step? So also continuing to like incrementally move up the chain in terms of what are these programs providing for us uh, has has been really helpful. And then also just kind of going back to my, my Sonistic experience, um, you know, they were really good at building a, a great management team very quickly. And I think being on the ground floor of that company and just seeing how experience, an experienced CEO and experienced leaders manage that company and address challenges was also just a really great learning experience. So I think that also kind of helped helped shape me and, and give me, you know, I won't say all the skills, but a lot of the skills that I've, I've needed to be successful. Yeah, it's certainly valuable. Um, uh, so another question, um, we were both at LSI and, I don't know if you were there on the very last day or not, but there was a, 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 a panel discussion and um, I forget if it was Dennis or Josh who said it, um, but one of them had said, you know, they said like, what's, what's raising money like in the current environment, right? And he was like, yeah, look, um, you know, we weren't, we're not where we were um, two years ago right where money was kind of free uh but we also aren't we weren't where we were um 10 years ago um you know in like 09 right or or i guess 12 or whatever mm -hmm. whatever it is uh at this point but it was really interesting and so you know you kind of have like double trouble here right <laughs> not only are you raising in med tech but you're raising for a pma um, mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, again, we have a whole nother series, MedTech Money, for really diving into this. But just curious for those listening in, you know, that are raising money in MedTech, which is going to be most entrepreneurs and more specifically, the ones who have that PMA device, you know, what what uh, what's some of your best tips for that or what worked well for you uh, in your round so far? 
Yeah, you know, I think that the biggest challenge and one that we've faced during our seed round and certainly one that we're facing now is that a lot of the VCs and institutional investors that that are interested in and willing to do PMA deals want human data. And I, I have heard that a lot through my entire career and my entire tenure with this company. It's just, it's just a reality. And I think that the unfortunate truth is that in the current conditions, more investors are saying they want human data than previously, um, just as a way to de-risk things and, and you know, push deals out a little bit further, uh, which is really unfortunate. I mean, I do honestly think that there's going to be a lot of losers on the startup side because of it. Um, you know, what I, what I would say is that if you're, you know, if you're a, a, a company raising its first round, its seed round, you know, be as choosy as you can, because those seed investors are going to be instrumental, not only for, you know, helping you with the series A raise, but, you know, being, being willing and able to put more money into the company. Um, you know, there's always going to be, things are always going to end up being more, maybe more expensive than you thought they would be. And, you know, factors like the current capital markets are, are things that honestly have nothing to do with your company and what you're doing. Like there wasn't a banking crisis because Nanocon's, you know, trying to solve knee lesions and all of a sudden people aren't getting arthritis in their knees. You know what I mean? So I think you, you need to, you need to be able to, to bring on investors who understand that and aren't going to just immediately jump ship if times are getting tough. Um, and then I, you know, I will say, uh, we're continuing to get a lot of interest in our round. So I, I won't, I won't say that, you know, investors are completely unwilling to invest in a, a preclinical stage company. Uh, you just kind of have to ask the right questions, you know, about, about check size, about stage, about exit horizon. Yeah. You know, the nice, the nice thing too, is that, you know, this, this maybe was not the case when we started the company, but it's definitely the case now. I mean, the strategics our potential, you know, exit partners, the people that are going to cause the liquidity event for any of our investors have really refocused on sports medicine and soft tissue generally. And so they've definitely sent out tons of signals that, yeah, this is an area that we are really extremely interested in. And there will be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for anyone willing to invest in these companies. So I also think, and again, that's not something that's necessarily in your control. Um, but it's something to think about when you when you look at um, you know what's what's the long road to going to market and and potentially getting you know and or potentially getting to an exit. I mean, are you doing something that the strategics care about? Because I think that does really change you know your your path of liquidity. Uh, you know, are you going to be able to get that pre revenue exit or not? So it's just it's just yet another thing to consider. And I think. Again, despite the, the times, this continues to be a really a really hot area, and it continues to be a growth area. So, you know, all the ortho companies at this point have, you know, focused up and at least have said publicly that they're making sports medicine a priority. So, I, th I think that that's kind of kept kept the dream alive a little bit <laughs> yeah. on the financing side. Yeah. No. Um, I I I always find it interesting. I, well, well, one we listened to his name is uh, Michael Gate. I think, or Galt. Um, I'd have to look it up. He's from JP Morgan. He runs a mm -hmm. life sciences group for the Midwest. And he was at a happy hour here in Cleveland recently. And, um, you know, he was mentioning that, you know, his prediction would be for 2023 that um, 
there might be a lot of mergers and acquisitions and even smaller companies um, getting gobbled up by some of the big players because there's a lot of cash on the sideline for the the large strategics, right? There's a lot of dry powder, I think is how he worded mm-hmm. it. Um, but, uh, you know, something I wanted to maybe call a little bit of attention to as well, and, and this goes with like part of the educational piece of Project MedTech, but, um, you know, it's really interesting. Clinical data for me is pretty black and white. Like it either worked or it didn't. Um, and you know, you you there's if you ever read a, a full, which I would expect nobody to ever do this, but if you ever read like a clinical trial, um, uh, like like procedure, y- you would understand how elegantly those are written to collect the proper data, have the you know proper patients in there, right? Like there's so much that goes in there where you can kind of control it, um, and then after that, it's like did it did did it work or did it not, right? Or was it safe or was it not? Um, to me, that would be more attractive, um, knowing that it's black and white from an investor standpoint. Um, <laughs> and I think this has to do with, um, uh, shoot, which book is it by Danny Kahneman? Um, anyways, Danny Kahneman and Amos Traversky wrote a book similar to this about how we think about financial decisions. And then um, Talia... Marie Schultz, I think is her name. She wrote one called like your life depends on it. And it's another similar book to this, but where I'm going with this is like, um, with commercialization, it's very gray for me. Like it, it isn't black and white because especially in med tech, um, mm-hmm. there's so many things that you can't control at all. Like you could have great clinical data, you could have a cheaper product. It could be reimbursable. It could have better clinical outcomes. And you might not have a physician owner. The physician might be like, yeah, I hear you. Uh, we're not using that thing. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's, well, we're not into that hospital. Or you get through all the way through these different things. And then the hospital says, "Ah, eh, we had a bad year. We can't really afford to take on a new product right now. And, you know, like, there's just so many things that are outside of your control. It's such a gray area for me where clinical data, not so much. And so my, my point in all this is like, it's, it's just, it's weird how humans and people <laughs> like are okay with commercialization because it is gray. We think we have more control over it, but scientifically we don't. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really interesting. And so I just bring that up because you're going to have to face that the rest of existence for an anacon, right? <laughs> is that is that somehow commercialization yeah. is looked at as like more controllable and it's like it's not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean that's that's very very well said. I mean, what a perfect way to put it. I mean, that's the irony is I I think that, you know, P- PMAs should be you know, flying off the shelves in terms of deals yeah. being done and there's a lot of re, you know actual real hard financial data that shows that they're better investments they have bigger returns oh, and, yeah. they, and they exit sooner but for some for some reason there's just a, a a real disconnect with that reality and and investor behavior and and like i said i think there's a very small select cohort of investors that do understand that and do mm-hmm. take that to heart but it's not it's not enough 
Yeah. So I, I, I probably brought it up on, we've done 130 some episodes of this podcast. I probably brought it up on 30 of them, but if, if people don't know Amos Traversky and Danny Kahneman, they need to read their stuff. And it's easy to start with the undoing project. It's written by Michael Lewis. It's kind of like a summary of their entire body of work, but um, if you haven't, if you, if you, so if you read that book, that's a quick read, but then they have so many other books, noise, thinking fast and slow. And there's a number of different things about psychologically how we think about things. And, um, it's just really funny when it comes to, to money. Um, all right, Ben. So, so quick transition here. Um, if, if, if I'm an entrepreneur listening in, um, what is your, best piece of advice like hey this I, I did this and I'm so glad I did um, but before you give that one because I want to end on a positive note what's <laughs> what's what's the the big mistakes you've made like what's the what's the um, I always compare it to like uh, I have a daughter at home and it's like you bump into one of her toys or you, you hit your shin on something or you step on something like what what, what were those moments for you so far where you're like Oh, uh, thank God that wasn't fatal, but boy, did that hurt. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I think it all comes down to the really early preclinical work um, and being able to kind of manage the, your first money in. Um, when I think about what was a place where we could have done better, um, I think when we got our SBIR grant, so this is like our first six-figure amount of money, and we used that to do a, a really nice GOAT study but I think we cut corners in the wrong places. And I also think that we tried to do, we tried to stretch the money too thin. Like we really should have just spent it all on the, on the GOAT study rather than trying to do some other technical activities. And so, you know, I think that was a lesson I learned is you really, you really have to understand what's the, what's the key piece of data that's going to come out of the next milestone and really prioritize that and prioritize the spend on that above everything else. Um, and so I think that yeah. that is what I would, I would tell folks that's, you know, probably a, a glaring mistake. And then in terms of things that I, I did that were good, that I think were, um, you know, really helpful seeking out regulatory advice, like, like actually working with a couple and actually we've, we've gone through four different consultants. We're fine. We're finally with the one that's going to be our consultant for the rest of the company's life. But, okay. um, you know, really digging into the regulatory and really understanding that early on and being able to talk about it, you know, with a level of sophistication and confidence that put in investors at ease. I mean, anybody who's really early stage, you have to do that. And it will impress people if you can. Cool. Awesome. Um, all right. So, uh, Ben, before we wrap things up, um, what can we expect next six months from Nanacon next year? Like what's, what's, yeah, uh, well, I mean, you know, we're, we're laser focused on our series a right now. So I'm, I'm hoping certainly that in the next six months, hopefully a lot sooner, we'll be able to close this series a. And then I think the next most exciting thing is we're hoping to be treating the first patient in January oh, of 2024. Sweet. So getting, getting the first in human trial up and running and, and actually getting this into a human being, uh, will be very exciting. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Ben. Um, so, so for everyone listening in, as always in the show notes, Ben's LinkedIn, Nanacon's website, um, you know, feel free to check that out. Um, Ben, you're pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, I am for sure. Okay, great. So if anyone, you know, needs anything, I'm sure there's a, 
outreach form on the website, but you can also reach out to Ben uh, through LinkedIn. Um, ben, thanks for so much for doing this. Like I said, hang on for one minute and uh, we'll chat offline, but thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.